Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. Today we're going to talk about the fear of failure. What happens if it all goes wrong in the first 90 or 100 days in your new role as a CFO or as a top finance leader? And with me to talk about that, I've got Catherine Lamb from Spectrum 360 Coaching Career Management. Hello, Catherine. Hello there. Nice to see you. Catherine, that problem of fear of failure in the first few weeks of a new job, now that's that's something you're very familiar with. Yes, I find a lot of my clients go into a new role and that's their, their biggest thing is a fear of failure. I think it's a common common to all of us, actually, is worrying about what's going to happen, what's going to go wrong, the traps to avoid and so on. And I think it comes mainly because we're aiming for success, understandably. And the opposite of success is failure. And so therefore, if you're aiming for one, chances are you could end up falling into another. So what I tend to work with my clients around is thinking more about being a learner rather than aiming for the high success, because a learner means that you can be more curious, you can be more reflective, and you're not fearing that extreme of um, falling into the abyss of failure. Yeah. Now, in Grow CFO, in our future CFO program, the final module, which is one that I run, is called your first 100 days in your new finance job, finance leader job. And we produced a free version of that course that's more more generic to any finance job rather than just securing the CFO role. And I must admit that I talk about that around putting a structure into those first 100 days of what you should do in the first 30, the second 30, and the third 30. What What's your model for approaching those first 100 days in a new role? I don't break it down into three segments of 30. I tend to look at from the very beginning of really my thing about it is that everybody fears not being an expert when they start their new role. So how can you accelerate your learning to get back into feeling more like an expert and more into your comfort zone again? And so the different areas I explore around that. One is around um, accelerator questions. What is it you need to ask that might feel really foolish in order to build up your confidence? And that's a really big thing for lots of people. Lots of people get so far in a senior role and they then think there's a certain amount of groundwork that they just didn't do it. They never kind of asked the questions they needed to do at the time to build up their confidence. So it's asking those questions and deciding who they're going to approach, who they feel they can be comfortable with. And also appointing unofficial mentors. And I call them unofficial because I think that if you point somebody to be a mentor, it makes quite heavy weather of it. It also means you can't get rid of them if you think, actually, I've chosen the wrong person or you can't outgrow them. And for the mentors, it would be, if you're starting a new company, it would be who knows the company culture really well? Who is it who's going to take care of your career progression? So what are different roles that different people represent? But the big thing I do really is looking at your identity because I think that's a big thing. So, for example, when you're changing from head of finance to CFO, you've got lots of new roles that you're doing that you weren't doing before. So I think it is working out how what are these different roles? 
How do I want to be in them? What do I want stakeholders to say about me when I'm not in the room? And I think it is, it's part of that clarification of your new identity that I think makes a really big shift to building up your confidence. Because I do think that it can be associated, a feeling of imposter syndrome can come in if you like, which is this gap between who I am and how I think I need to be to do this new role. And actually, I'm not quite certain what I need to do and how I'm going to look you know, what success is going to look like. So I think if you clarify how you want to be in the role, what you want people to say about you, and then look at it future focus, what does my future self need me to do right now as a way of building up my confidence, I think is another very helpful thing to do as well. So it's it's almost like different techniques for doing that. And I think as well around perfectionism, a lot of people, we tend to get very um, focused on process you know, we've got a fear of failure. So therefore process is going to save me. And process can help you so much. But when you get to a very senior level, you've been put into that role because you're adding value to the business and you're bringing in your strategic thinking rather than the fact of you're just following a well-trodden path and being wedded to process. So I think, again, it's around looking at understanding when is good enough, good enough, and what can I do to make it effortless? So that way you can spot, you know, those black swans on the horizon. Mm. Can I unpick a little bit of that? Yes, far away. All all the way back, you started talking about a mentor. Yes. Now, that mentor was clearly in the context of somebody who knew the company, knew the culture. Now, if you're moving into a more junior role, there's probably a lot of people in the company that you could choose. Yes, moving into a a C-suite role, that feels as though it becomes quite difficult. You're at the top of the tree already. So your official mentor, in a way, is going to be the CEO, probably the CEO, your boss, in one way of looking at it. Where would you go if you're at C-suite level looking for a mentor relationship? I think it would depend on if it's a new company, I would actually take somebody who might be quite junior level, who knows the company culture very well, because part of what you want to know is where do I go to get things done and how am I going to go about getting things done? So it might be somebody who's been a longstanding secretary. That's why I'm saying it's about making it unofficial. It's who you've got in your mind's eye that you're going to use for mentoring for something like that. And I think as well that when you're looking to switch roles as well, or you're either stepping up within your existing company or you're looking to go to a new company, another thing is to get some really good feedback because we've all have unresolved issues in the past that we are worried are going to come back and haunt us again in the future. And it can be really difficult, I think, to get honest feedback because most of us hate giving it. But what you can do is ask for advice and not about how to do the job, but it would be very much around if you were stepping up into this, what advice have you got for me as I step up into this new role? And it then gives people who've worked with you in the past the opportunity to pick out areas that they think you could work on to improve. And it's not asking for feedback, but actually, ultimately, you're getting that through the medium of advice. So it's a bit of a softer way of doing it. But equally, I think that is a helpful thing to do. And that's partly what I mean by mentoring. It is how you're going to get I suppose, a metaphorical hand-holding in those first few days. Mm. And if we're looking at the CFO role in particular, I think 
what my observation would be is that you've probably previously had a financial controller head of finance role, and you've been very much the inward face of finance. Now you've suddenly got to be the external face of finance. You're not, you're no longer the person who's charged with producing the monthly business results, dealing with the auditors, so on and so forth. You're the person now who's dealing with customers, suppliers, investors, the rest of the board. And overnight, your role has changed hugely from something that you knew inside out and you were very confident with to something that is very, very strange. Certainly in Grow CFO, we've seen the benefit of new CFOs having mentors who effectively gave a different role. They weren't the people that were helping show them the ropes of the new company, but it's they had a lot of grey hairs in doing the things the CFO does. And they're there as a sounding board and advisor and so on in a more official mentoring capacity. I think if you're moving in that sort of change that is is a real step change and will take you into unfamiliar territory having that mentor in place is hugely hugely valuable i suppose that that reinforces something else you said about process your old job as head of finance that was all about process your new job as cfo is not about process at all it's about solving a different problem every day and if you fall back into process, you probably fall in back into your old job. That's very, very dangerous territory to be in. So thinking imposter syndrome and saying, what can I do today that's the best thing for the me of tomorrow? Can you go into that in a little bit more detail of how, how perhaps you go about that? Because that, that sounds like the key to moving forward here. I think that's a good question, actually. And I think it's it's interesting what you're saying about the fact, yes, it's true about you're going more into a strategic role, dealing more with customers, suppliers and the board. And it goes back to one of the things I was saying earlier on about the fact that you're leaving behind your old role and your old identity. And you've got this period now whereby you need to clarify your new role. So it's a question of what do I want the customers to say about me when I'm not in the room? What do I want suppliers to say about me when I'm not in the room? What do I want the board to think about me? And it's starting to think and work through those, the answers to those questions that helps you then to clarify what your new identity looks like and how you're going to embrace it and take it forward with you. I can imagine that there have been several times when somebody's arrived in your office with real problems about how to put on that new identity. What? Where would you start telling them to go with kind of putting on that new set of clothes? That's a good question. I mean, I would actually say that when I work with clients, it's a question I ask them quite early on. And you're right, a lot of my clients ignore it or they pretend I haven't even asked it. You know, they it's almost like I've, I've asked it, and I then and I know they're not ready to answer at the moment. So I think that there there is this pain point at the beginning whereby you are trying to work out what it is. But equally, you get to a point whereby there isn't a ready answer for you. And the answer is quite individual because it depends on the person as to what they want and how they see that being. But I think that just by having it in your head and reflecting on it is a useful way of just starting to move you forward in a very small way. Because as you yourself said, it is thinking about 
what does my future self need me to do now? And that is around then it's building up that confidence to get going quite quickly. So that would be around thinking about, you know, what are the quick wins you're going to get under your belt? And I think also this whole thing around the um, accelerator questions is a really it's a really basic thing and it's a really big thing. I do that with a lot of my clients, which is working out what are the questions that you need to ask that will get you going quite quickly. And some of them are around skills base and some of them are bigger than that. And it is them and they map them out around their level of comfort around asking them and also deciding who they're going to ask. And they actually find as well that they might start off by thinking, I'll be so much more confident if I could ask these questions. And I've got a lot of them, they then find that actually they haven't actually got that many and you can then find one or two people and that starts moving you forward quite quickly as well. That is going to be a difficult one. And you, you've you come in as the as a C-suite lead, head of a team, and you've got these questions to ask that you must be, you must have an inner feeling of, well, I should know that. Yeah. I look silly asking that. Yeah. And I can realise you're going to get so far down the road with ha- with not having asked it and realise that, well, it really is a silly question now because I should have asked this four months ago. Is there a particular period in a new role where you can get away with asking the, the silly questions? I think it is, and that's why I get people to look at it from their, their comfort zone, their level of their comfort zone about asking the question and also about how ridiculous it is. Because there's something around it, you're either going to, you're either going to part this question, I'm never going to ask it, I'm just going to carry on and I'll just, I will dodge it or I'll evade it or I'll manage to build my confidence without it. But usually the questions that are seemingly silly are ones that are essential to our confidence later down the line. So what you're addressing is, if I don't ask it now, will it be easier to ask it in the future? Will I feel less foolish or is it going to get worse? And nine times out of 10, it gets worse. So I think you're better off asking it quite early on in order to get it out the way. And also it stops hanging over you like the sword of Damocles, which is also damaging, whereby you're feeling that there are certain things you want to know and you can't, you can't ask it. That is also holding you yeah. back. So you need that just in order then it just releases your energy to move forward and you've done it. And it's just not hanging over you. And it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And I know that from so much work I've done with clients whereby they've just thought this is just going to be awful. And they've come back and it's, I have to then ask them how it went because they forget to mention it because it was just nowhere near as bad as I thought it would be. Hmm. Catherine, you came into this whole area of coaching through a, not a standard coaching route. Your, your background is, it, is actually in recruitment, isn't it? Yes, it is, which in some ways, I suppose, feels like a standard coaching route because that's what I did when I was doing recruitment. So, yes, I worked in recruitment for about 15 years, and I found that when I was working with my candidates and placing them into new roles, what I would landing them the job was the easy bit. Working on a CV was easy. Um, doing interview preparation was easy. And a lot of my clients would then say, I've got this great, I've got this amazing job, which is fantastic, but actually can I do it? I'm now feeling really uncertain about it. And so the unpaid part of my job, if you like, was working with them for the first 90 days to get them started in a new role and get them going. Because also a lot of companies don't have great onboarding. They think they do, but they don't. So it is the case of how are you going to get started and manage your expectations and support yourself when you first get going there? Because it can be difficult when you start to go to somebody in the company and say, 
I'm feeling out of my depth. It's not done in the corporate world to talk about our feelings. Right. So you, you mentioned that onboarding. Um, certainly something I mentioned on that first 100 days in your new CFO role module is you know, go into your first 10 days, do whatever induction has been laid on for you, but have a checklist of what you'd like to be in induction and make sure that if it isn't in the formal one, you've worked out some way of covering the rest of it off. What do you think makes up a good induction in those first 10 days? What would the key things be that you're looking for in, in that process? I think if the company have got a mentor for you, I think that's great. I think that asking you how you're getting on in a way that doesn't expect a yes, no answer, whereby you are actually able to give genuine feedback about it, I think is another one. I think it is the hardest thing and the thing that most people want to know really is what is this new company culture really like? So it is finding, it is then being with people who've been at the company for quite a long time who can actually talk about that, what it's changed. And it's, I think it's also useful if you're working for a, com- for a company, for example, that's now what I call like mid-growth level, you know, it's come from being a startup and now it's mid-growth. It's really useful to actually get to an understanding of their story and where they are as well. So what are the company values as well? And it is by, and that's why I'm talking about an unofficial mentor as well. So it is around you know, the company on their website will have these are our corporate values. But actually, what you're wanting to understand is what does everybody live by on a day to day basis? You know, what isn't acceptable to do around here as well? So that's why I think it is the mentoring is very useful around the, the corporate culture as well. But I think it is around the regular checking in and ask and actually saying to somebody, what do you need from us? Because a lot of onboarding is laid on for, you know, this is how we do it. And we think this is a good way of doing it. But it is, I think, also asking the the individual, what more do you need? You know, where do you need to go now? What, What else do you need to help you get going quite quickly? And I think that that is often not the case. It's assumed that we know best for what would work for you. Mm. And I can remember all sorts of things. One one in particular I remember is starting my very first job as a management consultant. We had a great induction. Coopers and Librand put on a two-week induction course and covered a huge number of things and from the way the company worked to various core skills you'd need as a consultant that were probably different from what you'd been using in industry. But then I remember turning up on my first project. Then I found out some of the real stuff I needed to know. I'd been given a company car. So the first thing that I did was drive to the client, which was quite a long drive. Guys on the project said, you've driven here, Kevin. Now, now you've got a company car, but why didn't you get in an aeroplane? <laughs> oh, thanks. It would be nice to have known that. That's yeah. the expensive policy worked and the normal travel policy worked. Nobody mentioned that on the induction course. And straight away, you find out things about the culture of how things really happen in the organisation. That no matter how good the formal education is, there's there's no substitute for the informal bit. And you learn very, very quickly. Now, I was at quite a junior level back then, but learning those things at the senior level might have been quite embarrassing. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a good point, because I think when you're doing the induction, you're doing it through the lens of the company and the company's doing it very much around how 
we think things should be done around here. (laughs) And they're hoping that you're going to um, pilot this new way of doing things the company's been keen on for a long time, rather than actually how things really are done around here by everybody else. Yeah. And that's the bit you're trying to find out, really. So I think it is the case of it's almost then double checking what you've been told is company law. Yes. Yes. And quite often the reality is very different. Yes. Yes. So you've got this first hundred days. You're we've talked quite a bit about what you should be doing in the first maybe 10 days around induction, around getting to know people. As you go further down that hundred days, are there any other key key points that you'd think of any any key milestones in going through those hundred days i think we've not talked a lot about the quick wins but i think once you've got the quick wins out of the way i think it's important to get some quick wins under your belt which you can ask the team about you know what do they want what's going to make a big difference to them that you can do which kind of you know sets things up then for you to to do quite well i think it is i think there is a certain planning and this is something that I like to do because I always fear failure and I think a lot of my clients do as well which is as you're thinking about what it is you're going to do and take on board rather rather than rushing into it looking understanding seeing you know what's going on here and so on what do I now want to affect change about but it's also thinking about worst case scenarios so it's when you're planning to do a new project as well one of the things I do with some of my senior clients who are quite they're more introverted, more unsure about how they're going to go about doing things, particularly when it comes to delegating, because they can find that quite difficult to do because it's a case of you're trying to want to make sure the success is there, even it has to come from you, is looking at a worst case scenario, which is we've done this, it didn't work. What what made it fail? What could we do differently? I think it's another good thing to do, actually. It's like planning for your worst case scenario and then working out what could be done differently as a way of you know getting going with things. Mm. So it's Gary Klein talks about it in his book. Yeah, that 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 comes back to a podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago. We were actually talking about tech and what's what the great apps are for for 2023. But the the individual that I was talking to was talking about his own fear of failure and having gone through an exercise that said, well, what is the worst thing that can happen? And then thinking back and realizing that actually that worst thing that can happen is several steps away from what's actually going on. And quite a lot of things have to go wrong in series to get to that worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is actually therefore quite unlikely. And it's probably a good way of giving yourself some extra confidence. And Yes. And I yeah. think also as well as that, if you if you are somebody who catastrophizes, it is a case of if that should happen, what would I do? And it's just knowing that you've got a plan in your bag. It's almost like go back to a sense of um, perfectionism, which I think is around almost like an addiction for a need for control and sticking with process. It makes you able to flex a bit more because you've got a plan for that case that is so unlikely to happen. But you know then that you feel much safer thinking, oh, I've addressed that, addressed the elephant in the room. Yeah. And thinking about those quick wins as well, I'm I'm reminded of a podcast that I did a while ago with Susanna Serrano-Davey. We talked about putting a heat map for change together. Which is yes, I heard that podcast. Mm. It's really interesting. Yeah. Something Susanna's done on a, a number of occasions going into a new role, and it's all about taking your team off site and bearing in mind that if you're after some quick wins, well, who's the best people to tell you what goes wrong around here? 
what they'd like to see different and so on. It's your team. So take them off site. Do a brainstorming exercise with them. Number one, you'll start to get to know them. You'll start realizing who are the great players, who aren't so great. And they'll start telling you what needs to be fixed. And they'll help you prioritize. And they'll also help tell you something about the culture of getting things done. And as you start discussing, well, what are the quick wins? Why might this be a quick win rather than that be a quick win? Sometimes it's the cultural points that might come through in that. Oh, that's not going to be a quick win because you're going to have to go and convince Fred in sales to do something different. And you'll never convince Fred in sales to do something different. Suddenly you realize, ah, Sales is going to be a problem if we ever make any changes in the future. Going to note that one down as a future point of reference. And I think the other point that Susanna makes in there is that if you can get those quick wins under your belt, you get people realizing that you are somebody who can do something. You can't ask somebody who can make a difference. Your team is suddenly behind you because you've made their life a bit better in some ways. And the rest of the C-suite see that they hired you to make a difference. And you have started making a difference. Yeah. And I think as well as that, by involving the team, they're invested in the outcome as well. Yeah. And that's a that's a big point. Actually, I think throughout, and we're digressing a little bit, but a great point in if you're trying to change something, make people think that they were part of the solution. They came up with the solution. You're not imposing the solution on them. It's a new person in a new company who suddenly puts a whole load of new ideas onto people that they necessarily don't like. You're going to be pushing a very heavy rock uphill very quickly. I can't remember which American president, but one of them said, you can achieve anything in life or in business if you don't mind who gets the credit. And I think that's very true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the best leaders are the people that have managed to get the rest of their team the credit for doing things, that have supported the rest of their team in getting a stage further. Yeah. Thinking back into that recruitment space, when somebody takes on a new role, they've obviously had going in there, they've had a job description. They've had some idea of the roles and responsibilities they're going to have and so on through that recruitment process. How often do you think the reality of the job when they arrive is the same as the job that was sold to them before they got there? I think we both know the answer to that one. Um, Very seldom is the answer to that. And in fact, it's interesting because the job description, I get two types of job description. I either get the job description, which is this is the role they're going to be doing, or I get something that's going to attract somebody to the role um, as a way of almost like advertising it, if you like. And then there is no formal job description for when they go in there. But it is very, very different. I think companies ask for more than they Companies ask for more than they need in some ways, skills-wise and experience-wise, and then they don't ask for what it is they're secretly hoping for. And so when I'm doing recruitment, a question I would always ask the client is, what is it you're secretly hoping for that you haven't told me? And I'd always then say to the individual, what is it you're secretly hoping for that you haven't said? And it's interesting how there can be a discrepancy between the two. So, So I think that is very interesting point that people have these expectations they haven't actually declared and probably not even clarify with themselves really so thinking about that that insecurity 
taking on the new job then if you've got these interests that haven't been declared and the employer has these interests that haven't been declared that could potentially mismatch how do we sort all of that out in practice I think that when you're starting a role, and in fact, this is something that when I was in recruitment, I would also say to somebody starting as well is that, you know, you might have your appraisal after the first, you know, after the first three months or six months, depending. But it is around asking what they are expecting of the role, what they're hoping for, and finding that out and getting an idea around how they're going to measure it's being done in a way that they're hoping for. And then checking in and asking. I mean, it it can only be through asking, really, that you're asking about that um, and finding out. Do you do that before you accept the role or after you've arrived? Ideally, you should do it before you accept the role. But I think a lot of people wait until they've arrived. And in fact, I'd actually say a lot of people don't want to do it because they feel really uncomfortable about asking about it. Because I think a lot of us start a role and think, well, I've been given a job description I should know. I'm expected to know now. I can't I can't ask any more about, you know, what are they really hoping for they haven't told me about. And I think that is associated with a fear of what happens if they tell me and I'm not meeting that. But I do think it's important to find out and get those expectations managed and find out what it is they want to see and how it's going to be measured. But I think there is a fear of coming up short if you ask that question. Mm. Yeah, so there's something there in the first 100 days at some point confirm your mandate. Yes. Which is what are, it's definitely from what we're describing a two-way street. It's you as an individual saying, what do I want out of this job? What are my objectives? How do I fulfill those? And it's also going to your employer and saying what are you expecting from me and by when yes yes how and actually and the big question is how will you know yes because i think there's something around you know we talk about you know kpis and you know we're measuring and so on but really there is almost like a sniff test that we all really Mm. have whereby we think oh yes I, i i know this is going well i know this is going okay but i think because of all of this uncertainty. So if you think about it, you're trying to work out what the company is expecting of you. What are your expectations of the company? You've got this change in identity. And in fact, multiple changes in identity if you're stepping up into a CFO role and you've done head of finance before because you've got it for all these different, you know, the board, the customers, stakeholders, and so on. And I think that what you're a good thing for you to do is to just make a note of what you're doing well each day. And in fact, that's something that most of my clients is find is the most useful thing to do. And I give them that to do. I actually say to do it for that the first three months, but to be brutally frank, it falls away after the first three weeks. But it is just making a note each day. You don't have to write, write it. You can just like write down a one, you know, for every time it happens, you do something that you feel you're pleased with or something that boosts your confidence. And your aim at the end of that first week is to think about how you're going to increase that number. And that is a nice thing to do because it raises your self-awareness and it gets you reflecting as well around what you've been doing well. Mm, That's certainly a, I actually think that's a, a good point to take forward beyond that first three or four weeks? Well, I th- my I always say to them, do it for the first three months. I'm talking about, again, my expectations versus what they'll do. So, um, so I think it's a good thing to take forward and take with you. But I know that most of my clients 
although they say I'll try it for the first three months, they will do it certainly commit to doing it for the first three weeks and after that. And if you think about it, that's a good thing because what they're really saying is I stopped doing it because the need to do it went away, that's which a, I think is quite heartening. Went away. That is heartening. But I, I'd also say to people that the things that didn't go quite so well always play louder in your brain than the things that did go well whether that's your own performance or the success of a project or anything really, and therefore getting the things that went well down on a piece of paper and out into the open can be a very, very powerful. I think so. And I think it's also, you know, it is that it's and it's why it went well. Yes. So, and, and also, if you're going to take it further, how can I apply that now into other situations I find myself in? Because I think that when we start a new role, this this fear of failure is also connected to something feeling new and unfamiliar. So, and that's partly I think where the sense of imposter syndrome comes in, because you're addressing a question really, which is, is it the case that I'm feeling like an imposter because you know it's me and you know, I, I feel I've got a sense of failure, or is it the case it's just part of a learning curve because actually it's just unfamiliar. And will this pass? And I think it is quite useful to think you might have some imposter moments, but you don't have to live an imposter life while you're going through all of this. You know, you can go you can go through it and come out the other end. And so your your learning curve, you like, you've gone from being an expert in your own role, in your old role. You're now a learner and you are going to fast track as much as you can this learning period in order to get back to feeling more like an expert again. And I think that's it's when you get to that that then people then start dropping away the habits or, or the tools you've given them as a way of getting there because they think, oh, I, I now feel I've got to where I need to be just enough in order to move forward more. Yeah. And in Grow CFO, we've got the CFO competency framework, nine competencies, five skills in each, 45 skills in all. Now, we know from people that have taken the competency framework as they're moving into their first CFO role, that across those nine competencies, even the very best people will score less than seven out of 10 across the board. And we know fine well that nobody will be equally skilled in all nine. There will be some big, big gaps. And I think You've got to get your head around that and accept that having big gaps in your skill base is actually going to be quite normal. And even CFOs with 20 years of experience take the competency framework and they've got big gaps in certain areas. So I think a good move is possibly take our competency framework, have a look at where you stand. What things can you easily be better at? What things are you already good at? And think about what things aren't you particularly strong in can you rather worry about them how are you going to build some expertise around you that can help you in those areas because you will never never ever be good in all 45 i think that's a really good point because i i also think as well that the trend now is changing in the past it would be the case that we were being promoted because we were very good functionally so therefore it was a case of your skills, your competencies improved, and therefore you were promoted to senior level. But I, what I'm finding now 
with my clients is they're being promoted because actually they're very talented at bringing out the best in others. They're very good people managers. And, And so therefore, they've got this gap in their skills inevitably. And they are measuring themselves around, well, how can I be good in my role if I've got this gap in, this, in my skills? How can I develop other people if I don't have the knowledge in their area? But again, it's how are you going to support somebody to move forward with their learning where they need to, but also how are you going to continue to bring out the best in them, which is something that you know how to do anyway, because, and that's the harder bit. We can all learn skills and competencies, but bring out the best in others, I think, is the fairy dust, really. And you're moving into a CFO role if you've done that from a finance function. Not every CFO has. Some are coming from a banking environment, but let's let's assume you're coming from an accounting environment. Yes, you will be able to coach other people in the finance team that are doing jobs that you've done in the past in quite a hands-on way because you know how to do it. Now, a lot of CFOs these days are being asked to look after teams from other parts of the company. Now, you suddenly move into a CFO role, you're in charge of the legal team. Mm. The, last time, the last time you looked at law, oh, oh I did a module in uh, law of contract in my first year at university. Ah, now that makes you the legal expert in the company, doesn't it? Not. So how do you manage the legal team in the company? It's got to be around giving them space, encouraging the talent, recognising that they've got the answers and all you're doing is taking the the barriers away from them being able to do the job well. Yes, you're right. And it's it's taking that coaching approach, really, isn't it, to your managerial role, whereby people know where to go if they need an answer to a knowledge-based question which you haven't got. But equally, it's a case you're enabling them to do that and you're still knowing, showing them and teaching them, if you like, how to improve their learning so they can therefore move along rather than feeling that they can't be autonomous. Because that's a big thing. Most people are unhappy in their job because of their boss. <laughs> yes. There's one final question, though, here. Now, you've, and I'm asking you this because of your background in recruitment, Catherine. Now, you've taken on the new role. You've gone into your hundred, first 100 days. You've discovered some things about the job you weren't expecting yes you're feeling this lack of confidence this lack of certainty but you you have this realization that perhaps you shouldn't have taken the role on maybe it's more than imposter syndrome and you have perhaps actually made a mistake where does that difference between it being imposter syndrome and oh i've done something wrong here i need to do something about it come in And what would you advise somebody did about it? With imposter syndrome, it's more, I would say it's more the fear. It's more, I'm feeling like a fraud. I'm fearing failure. I'm feeling I'm not good enough. So it's all around the emotion. Whereas what we're talking about is something whereby you can sense it more in your head. There's more of a rationale behind it, which is this is not what I thought it was. And more to the point, it's not fitting in with what is my long-term goal. So I think imposter syndrome is very much the feeling around the here and now, around this gap around how I am and how I think I need to behave to get to where I need to be. But what we're talking about now is something that isn't going to take me towards what is my long-term goal now that I've clarified what the nature of the role is. So I think that is the difference between the two. And I think I would then say that having said all of that, 
a lot of when I've had clients in the past who've moved within the first 90 days, quite a few of them have actually regretted it. And it's because the role wasn't what they were expecting and they weren't enjoying it, but they hadn't thought enough about how much it fitted with what their long-term goal was. So they focused too much on, this is a surprise. This wasn't what I was expecting. Therefore, I'm going to make a move around it. But I think, therefore, it's important if you are thinking about making a move in your first 90 days or 100 days, you are very clear on what your long-term goal is. So therefore, you know, is this just an an uncomfortable step or a bit of a boring step you have to take in order to get there? Or is it the case this step isn't going to get you to where you need to be and you're better off doing, taking, going somewhere else and doing something different? I think a lot of my clients in the past didn't answer that question. And I think it's essential to do that. Otherwise, you're trying to work out, is it just teething problems or it's a lack of expectations being met rather than it's long term. And given that earlier in this conversation, we both agreed that the job you end up in is very rarely the job that was advertised. Yes. Then think long and hard before you do anything rash, I suppose, is the message coming. Yes, it is that. And I think it's also as well, it's because I think a lot of a lot of us don't think about what it is we really what energizes us, what will get us out of bed in the morning. And I think that's quite an important thing. When we look for a job, we're looking for a job description, something that's going to tempt us rather than actually starting with ourselves and thinking about what is it that I really want? What do I need? What's going to really you know, make me jump out of bed, even on a bad day and take the rough with the smooth? And I think if you do that, you then got your sense of purpose that you actually then that will always remain a constant and always go with you. And it will see you through the rough times, really, because always going to be rough times. But at least that way, you know, is this are you being consistent with what you say it is that you want? Mm. And I suppose it's very easy to fall into that trap. We we have aspirations to a certain level of job. We have aspirations towards a certain level of salary. And probably we in Grow CFO are as guilty of promoting that as anybody in our own sales and marketing around the future CFO program. You know, we're looking to play on people's aspirations to get into that role but it's it's true we we don't ask the question often enough about well how does this fit with my purpose how does this fit with where i really want to be and in, as an individual long term yeah i think that's a really good sobering note to end on catherine thank you very much for being this week's guest on the grow cfo show thank you very much for having me i've enjoyed it I have too. Thank you. 